0: Extravagant spending much more than is necessary or prudent exceeding the bounds of reason. Have you ever experienced the extravagance? Maybe you've stayed in a fancy hotel, been on a luxury cruise, anything like that. One time Corey and I were backpacking in Europe and we got to visit Versailles, you know, King Louis XIV's palace and just his dining room, right? Covered with gold and ivory and Extravagant, spending much more than is necessary or prudent, exceeding the bounds of reason, Extravagance is is oftentimes relative to what you have, isn't it? It's not necessarily spending as much as King Louis XIV or going on a luxury cruise. In fact, I was serving down in a church in California before Corey and I moved up to Washington. And when we were called to come up to Washington, the church we were serving at gave us a going-away party. A good friend of mine named Dan uh, was at this going-away party. And he was one of the top animators at Industrial Light and Magic for Lucasfilms. He worked on some of the Star Wars stuff. He didn't write the stories. But, you know, the the prequels. But he got to animate some of it and Terminator or something else like that. Pretty cool. Well, anyway, he decided to go to seminary. The Lord was calling him to seminary. So he left this high-paying, pretty fun job. And then he was living in this dormitory-style apartment. The guy never had 20 bucks at any given time in his pocket. It's what happens when you go to seminary, usually. And so uh, at this going-away party, he got choked up and said, You know, I don't have a lot to give you, but I want to offer you something because we're both Star Wars nerds. He takes me to his car and looks around like, was he going to give me drugs or something? He looks around and pulls out this jacket. On the back, the logo is Industrial Light and Magic. And uh, on the front, Rebel units. It's got the Rebel Alliance logo on there. This is about all he had left of the remnant of that, uh, besides some pirated software and stuff. But um, for Dan to give me this coat was in my book, extravagant. I tried and tried not to take that jacket, but I soon figured out that it was going to offend him not to take it. Spending much more than is necessary or prudent, beyond the bounds of reason, extravagant. This evening we're going to encounter extravagance in our text. We're going to see some awesome examples of extravagance and some counterfeit examples of extravagance. And I want us to try and sniff it out as we go through the text. Now I'm going to read a lot, 26 verses, and I'm going to break it up for us in three nice sections. So would you stand with me, get your your legs ready to stand for a little bit. I'm going to read John 12, 1 through 26. This is a familiar story to a lot of people, the Palm Sunday story. So maybe instead of following along with your Bible, if if you want, visualize it. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now there was a large crowd of the Jews, and they learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus, because on account of him, many Jews were going away, and they were believing in Jesus. Now on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they they took branches of the palm trees and went out to greet Him. And they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion! Behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Not a blue one, but a donkey's colt. Now these things his disciples did, or these, th- these things his disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, well, then they remembered these things that they were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to talk about Jesus. For this reason also, the people went and met him, because they had heard. He performed this incredible sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor them. Father, this is an incredible story. All the more incredible because it happened. I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears. Open ourselves up to you to speak to us through this text. Recreate us. Make us men and women who are able to trust you with our whole lives. Amen. Maybe seated. A lot of a lot of words there. I'm going to divide this thing into three acts. So we'll pretend it's a play. Sophia just went to Hansel and Gretel ballet, and she this is how she judges these performances, right? How many intermissions are there? How many intermissions? Are, oh, this one only had no intermissions. It was a short one. But uh, we're going to have three acts in this one. So this would be a two-intermission play for Sophia. She here. Just before this story that we're going to look at, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember Lazarus was this guy who was friends with Jesus and he died. He was in a a tomb for four days. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus came into town and with a word spoke Lazarus back to life, resuscitated him. Alright? So now they are Back at Lazarus' crib, for lack of a a better term. But they are chilling with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Now, Martha is serving the meal. She's preparing. She's serving everybody. Lazarus is reclining with Jesus, hanging out. And I wonder what that conversation was like. You know, like, dude, I was so dead, like, last week. And I don't even know what they would be saying. But, like... I guess something like that. And, and from other parts of the Scripture, we can also infer that the other disciples were there in the room as well. And they're lounging at this table when all of a sudden, Mary approaches and takes a Roman pound, which is about 12 U.S. ounces of this perfume made of spikenard, pure nard. She anoints Jesus' feet. Now, this perfume, of course, is very expensive. And uh, in the Scriptures it tells it's about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wages for an average laborer. I mean, so, this one thing, a year's wages, she just anoints His feet. Extravagant, spending more than is necessary or prudent, exceeding the bounds of reason, But there's more. Not only does Mary anoint Jesus' feet with crazy expensive perfume, but she touches His feet. I mean, that's inherent in anointing the feet, but that's a big detail because you didn't touch other people's feet. That was a job for servants. Here Mary is one of the mistresses of the house. You know, she would normally have servants to do this kind of job. She gets down, touches Jesus' feet with this expensive extravagant gift and to take it one step deeper she does it with her hair her hair from all we can tell mary and martha don't seem to be married women and for an unmarried woman especially to have your hair down in the presence of men was kind of a could be seen as a sensual act but more importantly a woman's hair was her glory her glory and so to, to, to put herself in the position of a lowly servant, to give all that she have, this extravagant gift, and then to wipe this man's feet with her hair. extravagant, extravagant. Mary's not thinking sexual here with her hair down. She's thinking devotion. Extravagant, extravagant devotion. Now, in contrast to Mary's extravagance stands Judas' stinginess. And he gets all uptight about it and says that it's wasteful, right? He's a pragmatist. And never mind that the Scripture tells us that you know, he was a thief and he used to steal out of the money box. Judas voices an opinion that's pretty common, I think, in our culture. What could have been done with that money? Could it have been used to, to serve the poor? Could it have been used to feed how many mouths, put food on a table, to plant a tree for heaven's sake, but not to wipe on somebody's feet? There's all kinds of less extravagant ways to spend that money. It's typical, I think, for us to look at the waste, but I don't think it's John's point at all. He includes it, this gift of the nard, To illustrate trust. When Lazarus was ill and then he died, I don't know if you've thought about this, but in that culture, an unmarried woman would have been dependent on the next oldest male in her house. Now, she's living with Lazarus. kind of tells me that her dad's either a deadbeat or just not around. So Lazarus is her social security. Lazarus is the provider. If he were to die, the only thing that they could do would be to beg or to become a prostitute, or hope that somebody would marry them. Mary and Martha, for four days, lived with the fear that they would not be provided for. And then Jesus came on the scene and brought their brother back to life. Amazing. Mary takes this perfume That's probably an heirloom passed down generation to generation. This perfume that would have been a year's worth of labor, would have supported she and her sister should anything ever happen to Lazarus again. It was her social security. It was her nest egg. It was her health insurance. Everything in a jar. And she pours it out. This is why I think... Because Mary experienced the transforming power of Jesus when He healed Lazarus. She was beginning to realize that death does not have the final say when Jesus is in the picture. was beginning to realize that, death does not have the final say, when Jesus is in the picture. She was beginning to realize, that death does not have the final say, of our financial security, when Jesus is in the picture. She was beginning to realize, that death doesn't have the final say, of our comfort, when Jesus is in the picture. She's beginning to realize, that death cannot defeat, us, when Jesus is in the picture. So by pouring out this perfume, her nest egg, her retirement fund, her insurance, whatever you want to call it, she's showing her devotion to Jesus by preparing for his death, but she's also showing her trust in him. She has extravagant trust beyond reason, at least beyond worldly reason. Close act one. What do we trust in? What are we trusting in? Well, we enter into Act 2. After this incredible episode of extravagance, John turns our attention towards the crowds. And all throughout John's Gospel, there's kind of this thing we notice about the crowds. The crowds are always in this exciting frenzy when they come around Jesus. But as soon as He doesn't meet their expectations, or as soon as He starts talking about the hard things about following Him, they all disperse. These crowds represent people who want to hang around Jesus for what they can get from Him without having to actually obey Him. Okay? So the crowds hear that Jesus is in Bethany, and they come out to see Him, but not just Him. They come out to see Lazarus too. I mean, it's kind of like... uh, Oh, gosh, I mean, they don't have movie theaters and stuff. This is the coolest thing to come to town. Lazarus, the guy who was dead is now back to life. I want to see if I can touch him or, or overhear a conversation about him. I mean, there's this this buzz going around in Bethany. Here's this guy who's back to life, and Jesus the one who healed him. So they're coming for curiosity. And the chief priests get all bent out of shape because they're already plotting to kill Jesus. He's getting too popular. But now they want to kill Lazarus too because if this guy, Lazarus, is walking around, he's a living, breathing testimony that Jesus is something special. And isn't that just like worldly powers? What can you do when you can't silence something? Or what can you do if your truth doesn't match up to Jesus' truth? The only thing they can do is kill. Well, it's kind of ironic, don't you think, when Jesus is the one who just raised someone from the dead. I don't think death is really going to work. But they plot to kill Lazarus. And it's kind of an underhanded way that John is showing us. These leaders don't have a clue what they're doing. The next day, Jesus heads into Jerusalem. Crowds follow him and they grab palm branches. And uh, I don't know if you saw on Facebook, but kind of the invitation to, to this evening's message is this picture of Jesus coming in on a donkey. And then people, these guys are in these trees and they're just ripping off palm branches. They're just going to the trees as Jesus is coming into town. You can kind of picture it. And they're just... In a frenzy. I think Matthew's gospel tells us that they put coats down as well. And they're just making this smooth path for Jesus to come in and they're hailing him king. They're saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, what's the deal with palm branches? Like, we don't really do that today when someone's coronated president or anything. Palm branches were a national symbol for Israel. Now, in Jesus' day, Rome occupied Jerusalem, right? We've kind of gone over that week after week. But before Rome occupied Israel, there was another, well, lots of nations over history, but Syria was a big nation, came and crushed Israel. Uh, The leader of Syria said, you you can't have your, your language and you can't have your religion. And they desecrated the temple underground pockets of resistance like the rebel alliance uh, rose up underneath. And there was one guy named Judah Maccabeus who led a rebellion and kicked Antiochus out, the, the leader of Syria, and, and rededicated the temple. And then for decades, this family of Maccabees, it was Judas Maccabee and, and Jonathan Maccabee, these sons after, after their father would lead Israel. Jonathan, one of their great leaders, got suckered by an enemy king into coming unguarded, and he was betrayed and murdered. And the people of Israel were extremely frightened. All these surrounding kings were plotting to reinvade Israel. And then Jonathan's little brother Simon stood up. He took the reins of leadership and he began to rebuild the citadel and he would restrengthen the walls and he said, Have courage, Israel. God is with us. And Simon was this great leader and he conquered all these invading kings. And when Simon came back from victory into Jerusalem, do you know how the people greeted him? Climbing up into trees and pulling down palm branches and waving them and putting them at his feet. In fact, palm branches were um, minted into the coins during this rebel time when Israel took back power. Palm branches became this national sign of independence, of victory over foreign rule. So when Jesus is coming to town, this man who has just fed 5,000 people and a man who has uh, raised someone else from the dead... The people want him to be a leader like this Simon Maccabee. A powerful leader who would go crush Rome and take Israel back. So they put branches down. Their indication of who they wanted him to be. Well, if the people's hosannas and palm branches communicated what type of Savior they wanted Jesus to be, Jesus had to communicate his own agenda. So, the way he did that was by finding a young donkey. I mean, he's already almost to Jerusalem. I don't think Jesus gets tired and says, You know, for this last mile, I need a donkey. He grabs a donkey because it's symbolic. It's symbolic. He's trying to communicate something. So he gets on this donkey, and not a horse. If he were a king coming in to defeat Rome, he'd be on a war horse, and he'd have have an entourage, right? He'd be coming in with power. Instead, he not only chooses a donkey, but a foal of a donkey, a young donkey, just as Ashley so eloquently read earlier. Zechariah's prophecy. That's what he wants them to think about when coming in on a donkey. And this part of Zechariah's prophecy is beautiful. Listen to this. Zechariah is prophesying peace. He's prophesying that all nations, not just Israel, thank goodness for us, right, if you're not ethnically Jewish, all nations will be able to come to know God, have a relationship with God. And the third thing is that all people would have a new covenant with God by the blood of a new covenant. So, so ironic that Jesus is communicating. He wants to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah. He wants to bring peace. And in five days from that event, who are they going to let go instead of Jesus? Barabbas, who was a terrorist, a murderer. Here comes a king of peace, and they choose a man of violence. Jesus would make it possible for all nations, not just Israel, to find forgiveness. But how how do the leaders treat Jesus, what do they say? They complain that, and I quote, the whole world is going after Him. The new covenant in Jesus' blood would make a way for spiritual captives to be made right before God, but these leaders would end up killing Jesus. By the way, on the Passover, just like a lamb. John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, cries out saying, "Behold!" The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Palm Sunday, an incredible time of celebration for some, mixed with the reality that Jesus is not that kind of king. Last month my grandfather passed away, and I was uh, gifted this crucifix that was belonged to him and my grandmother when she was alive. I thought it was so fitting for today. What do you recognize about this crucifix? What's this? Palm frond. Palm frond. These palm fronds represent people's nationalistic expectations of Jesus. That he would come and be a conquering king. That he would wipe people out and make Israel the most powerful nation this is the kind of king he really is. One who lays down himself to bring peace, not just for one nation, but for the world. And it's as if to me, as I've been contemplating this, these are my expectations of what I wish Jesus was for me. And I've got to nail them to the cross with him. Because the minute I or you try and put Jesus into our image, and force our expectations on Him, we'll be disappointed. I wonder how many times our expectations of God get in the way of our really knowing God. On the front of your bulletin, there's a quote by N.T. Wright. I'm going to read it now. As we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us. Are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? You know, the long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of Him, to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but also now to follow Him into trouble, into controversy and trial and even death? In Act 1... We see Mary's extravagant show of devotion and trust. And Act 2, we see these crowds come and they have a celebration, but it's a misguided celebration. Their celebration was, was frenzied. I mean, guys ripping branches off trees and laying them in front of Jesus, singing hosannas. In just a matter of days, those same people would scatter. You know who would be under the cross when Jesus is crucified? Mary. (laughs) None of these crowds. As we transition to Act 3, we open with the Pharisees saying the whole world is is going after him. In fact, John tells us that the Greeks were seeking Jesus. And these aren't necessarily people from the country Greece. Greek was like the common language of the Mediterranean. It was a trade language. So you're from Rome, you speak Latin, and I'm from Israel, I speak Hebrew. But when we get together to trade, we would speak Greek. It was a common language. Everybody kind of knew it. And so when it says here that the Greeks were seeking Jesus... It means every person from the known world who was there for Passover was seeking Jesus. Kind of a fulfillment of that prophecy, the nation's coming. Jerusalem was about 80,000 people. At Passover time, you would get 200, 250,000 people, pilgrims from all over, converging on the city. And they're speaking Greek. So these Greek speakers were coming and seeking Jesus. John adds this kind of cool detail that they go to Philip first. Philip, of all the disciples, has a Greek name. So maybe they felt more comfortable going to him. And so Philip then goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus, and they say, hey, these, these people want to come talk to you. Jesus doesn't really seem to address them directly. He doesn't even really, apparently, address their question at all. But what he says is extremely, extremely relevant. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And do you know what the glory of the Son of Man is? His death on a cross. His death on a cross. Most people, uh, most of the people Jesus was talking to were these agrarian types. That means, you know, like, I think it's cool, I've got some raised bed planters, we're going to put some more in. But if push came to shove, we just the way our personal eldritch econ- economics are, we could afford to buy produce at Hagen or something like that, the farmer's market. We think it's fun and we think it's a good use of our property to grow food. These folks were subsistence farmers so they would have their own, each family would have a plot and they would, you know, if the land didn't produce, they didn't get those vegetables that year, okay? So, Jesus starts to use this agricultural term, it's maybe a little foreign to us, maybe not to Wayne Youngquist because he is a seed master, but, uh, you know, you know, most of us kind of have to think about this a little bit, but Jesus tells them uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, the Greeks could seek Jesus all they wanted, but if he didn't die and atone for their sin, the Greeks, the Jews, you, me, none of us would really be able to come to Jesus. We all need forgiveness. We all need forgiveness for our sin. Like a seed that falls from a plant. It's a seemingly dead grain buried in the earth like a tomb. Unless it dies and sprouts, there can't be new life. And just days, just days from this statement, Jesus is going to be crucified. It's the Father's plan from the very beginning. Jesus is going to be that seed that dies, that we would have new life. He's going to take the full brunt, the full force of evil. The full force of evil that you and I help perpetuate, the full force of evil that you and I actually deserve to take, he's going to take it on himself for you and me. Extravagant, spending much more than is necessary or prudent, exceeding the bounds of reason. Jesus' love is extravagant. Now, here's the deal. He calls us to be His disciples, His students. If His love is extravagant, He's calling us to have extravagant love too. He says, He who loves His life loses it. And he who hates His life in this world will keep it until eternal. Now, what is going on here? I thought Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundant. It says so in John 10. I thought I was supposed to enjoy creation. I thought I was supposed to... Love life, that Christianity would you know mark my life with joy. All true? All true. This is a common saying in those days. So it's like hyperbole, uh, saying something to the extreme to make a point. Jesus is saying, If you love your life in this world, more than you love me' You don't really know what life is. If, On the other hand, if you hate your life in this world compared to following me, you've got it figured out. Jesus is saying, wake up. I am the most important thing in your life. And I alone can give you full abundant life. I alone breathe life into you. And that is exactly what he's saying. It means he who views worldly pleasures as less important than trusting Jesus, will keep their lives for eternity. So, how do we die like seeds in order to fully live? What do we need to do... In order to live extravagantly and love extravagantly. Married died to her instinct for self preservation. She poured out her worldly trust in a jar on Jesus' feet. And maybe, you know, one of the things I've been pondering, you have to figure out what God's doing for you, is dying to my expectations of who God is and what I want Him to do and be for me. My expectation of comfort that makes. One hoard resources out of fear. Expectations of popularity that maybe makes us compromise truth. Expectations that health is a right of mine and causing me to want to curse God if I'm not healthy or not well or people in my life are not well. I need to die to expectations of myself being the center of God's thoughts. We're often, I think, self-centered towards God. Focused on what we want more than what God wants for us. Being a seed that dies is a call to humility. And I love this definition of humility. I ripped it off from somebody. I can't remember who. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Right? You are made in God's image. So humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. And God's plans for us more. So what is your pure nard? Your jar? What is it? How could you trust God so extravagantly that people might say, you're exceeding the bounds of reason? You don't look normal. You don't act normal. I'll never close a message with something you've got to do, by the way. The only reason... The only reason we're called to love extravagantly is because we've been loved extravagantly. Jesus has already gone before us to do it. Listen to this. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be utilized. He emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason also that God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you loved us so extravagantly beyond what is... Really, even comprehendable. I, I can't wrap my mind around it. Giving yourself to save us when we're not really even always asking for it. When half the time we're so blind we don't even realize we're rebels. Part of the other time we just don't care. <sighs> I pray that we wouldn't leave this evening without just being overwhelmed with your extravagance. Going beyond what is prudent, what is respectable. Would you fill us with gratitude and joy that, that we would just want to respond in love. Not that we would leave here thinking we have some duty, that we've got to grind our teeth and go perform something. I thank You that You save us by Your grace alone. Through faith, that's it. Show us how to really live. By dying to those things that take your place in our lives. Amen.